Hey friends, welcome back to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, where we're talking about practical insight for racial justice and social progress. I'm your host, Andre Henry. And also, I mean, got to do it right up front. If you really enjoy the show and you want to make sure that it keeps happening, you can become a patron and get like, un it's not uncut. That's not the right word, but it's like unedited, you know, versions of these conversations. So, you know, feel free to look us up on patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Today, I am joined by uh, Anat Shinker Osario. She is a strategic communications expert and the host of the podcast Words to Win By. I love that podcast title, by the way. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, um, I... I have been shown. So I uh, I help different movement groups in L.A., you know, talk about strategy and help clarify their goals and stuff like that. And I have uh, so relied or recommended and referred ASO communications to them just in thinking about messaging. So um, I'm super excited and honored to have you. First thing I want to ask you about is your own podcast, you know, Words to Win By. Could you tell us about what is this show about and your goals there? And I know that you have a new season coming up. Just give us the tea. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so Words to Win By is about campaigns that we have won. It's about winning around the world. Each episode profiles a campaign somewhere uh, that we won and the words that we use to do it. So it deconstructs what was the prevailing message why was that failing? What did we have to do to change it? Many times we walk through firsthand empirical testing, which is the work that I do, to look at why was the status quo message not resonating? What were people actually hearing when they heard that? And how did we construct this new message? And then it goes through implementation. How did the campaign actually change over from what in many cases is long, long, long term habituated messaging, right? So for example, one of the episodes in season one is about um, repealing the constitutional ban on abortion in Ireland in order to legalize abortion in that country. Probably your listeners know, very Catholic country, Ireland, And so it was there about many things, but for example, challenging the discourse of pro-choice and actually not using that frame. And why was that a failing frame? Why was that not working? What could we say instead? And how do you actually get people who have been campaigning under a framing or under a branding, in many cases for generations, to consider, oh, actually talking about it this way has proven ineffective. We need to go about talking about it in this other way. And so, yeah, each episode is a campaign we won. Um, It came about, uh, and I say this with all humility, it came about (laughs) because it took me roughly a billion years to become aware of my own hypocrisy. Okay. And what I realized was that if I had to encapsulate messaging advice that I give over campaigns, over geographies, issues, etc. It can boil down to say what you're for. That is what I most often tell people. Mm-hmm. Say what you're for, what you fight, you feed. If the left had written a story of David, it would be a biography of Goliath. Stop talking about, <laughs> your, opposition. Talking about your opposition makes them more powerful. 
say what you're for. If you want people to come to your cause, you need to be attractive. These are all many ways that I have come up with over the years to say the same thing, right? (laughs) And what I realized is that when I would be training folks or giving public presentations or speeches, I would frequently give a speech that was like this. What the fuck was this stupid message? Why did you say this stupid shit? This message is terrible. Look at this message. Oh. Also, you're doing the same thing that you're telling people. Yeah. 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 I'm not really doing a lot of saying. I mean, I would get eventually to say what I was for Mm -hmm. somewhere down the line in the presentation, but I would frequently begin with, you know, here is this really problematic messaging. This is. This is how this actually manifests. We tested it. When we test it, this is actually what voters believe and hear and desire. This is why this Mm -hmm. doesn't work. And so the podcast was really, is really me checking myself Mm -hmm. and saying, if we want to win, and I don't know about you, but I want to (laughs) win. If we want to win, then we actually need to believe that we're capable of winning. And that sounds facile, but actually it is one of our core problems that Mm -hmm. uh, the miserableism of the left, the left is very attracted to its own miserableism and Mm. to talking about how terrible and horrible things are because they are. (laughs) Yes, agreed. Because that's true. Yep. Mm -hmm. However, in general, high potential voters, people who are not deeply engaged in the political system, but theoretically Mm -hmm. could be the people that I refuse to call low propensity voters. Because again, Mm -hmm. we make our own reality. When you call people low propensity voters, you call them non-voters, or you call them not engaged or not participating, that actually feeds them not doing it. It's a Mm self-fulfilling prophecy. People perform to what you set out for them, right? Wow. Yeah. Parents know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You undermine your own kids by telling them that they are not high, you know, they don't read, they don't like math, they don't, they're not very good at this and they're not very good at that. You will make that be true. Mm-hmm. And so when we reference the communities that we reside within, that we work with, that we advocate on behalf of the identity groups that we care about, when we reference them as sort of, oh, you know, Latinos don't really turn out much. Mm. Young people, they're unengaged from the political system. You know, in particular, Black people tend to participate less in midterms. That has a measurable demobilizing effect. Mm. That actually Mm. makes fewer people participate. Because do the thing they think their kind of person does. And yes. so if you're receiving messaging that says your identity group, your sort of affiliative category behaves in this way, then people are mm-hmm. actually more likely to do that thing. So, um, yeah, that was a very long answer about the podcast. I appreciate it. But yeah, yeah, if we want to believe, if we want to win, we have to believe that we can win, which means we need to listen to stories about Mm -hmm. us winning. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it because the imagination is based on analogy. So the more that we hear about, you know, these, um, the more that we hear about ourselves winning is the more we feel that we have the grounds to believe that we can win in the future. I love that. Um, And you mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about, like, so 
the examples of the stories that you that you just mentioned, like the stories that we tell, okay, uh, black voters don't show up for the midterms or whatever. All right, so what what kind of story should we tell instead in of, of making that kind of statement? Yeah, and I want to be clear. Actually, black voters are very, very black. Black voters are actually really as to use the parlance of political insiders, high performers, black women mm-hmm. in particular, very high performers are not a lot. Uh, it's Latinos in particular that get labeled as yes. sort of low propensity, low turnout, et cetera. Um, and still, obviously, across the board, America is a low participation country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We have a high degree of people who are voter eligible and never vote or who vote only intermittently and don't vote in midterm elections, et cetera. That is true. You know, th- mm-hmm. that is a problem across racial groups. Uh, so what kinds of messages do work? Um, sort of fake it till you make it. Sort of okay. the theory of messaging, by which I mean... Black folks are turning out in record numbers. We're taking to the polls like never before. This is the year that Latinos ascend. Latinos are taking to the ballot box. You know, Latinos in uh, L.A. County last year, they delivered a victory on behalf of blah, blah, blah. You do not ever make things up. That's not allowed. You take information and you frame it. That's literally what framing means, right? It's a Mm -hmm. choice of... Like when you are taking a photograph, what will be mm-hmm. in my foreground and what will be in my background? What will be cropped and what will be left into the frame? And so mm-hmm. you take accurate information, correct information of yeah. places where the demographic group you're attempting to reach have actually done the thing that you're describing. And you say, here's this thing we did. And in yeah. particular, let me give you a concrete for instance. So in the 2020 cycle, um, I partnered with a group, um, I'm not allowed to say who they are, but mm-hmm. we did a very, very large scale field experiment with peer-to-peer texting on Black voters, and in particular, young Black voters. And so what a field experiment means is that unlike a survey where we're relying on people self-reporting, they're saying, this message does make me want to vote. This message doesn't make me want to vote, which may or may not be true, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of the like, I will pay you tomorrow of public opinion research. Everyone mm-hmm. always tells us that they are going to vote. And then that is not true, right? As the most, <laughs> one of the most lied about questions in public opinion. Is, <laughs> it's a little bit like how we're all flossing when the dentist asks us. <laughs> all of us. Oh, sure. So twice, a, twice a day even. Yeah, so much flossing happening when we get asked about it. It's unbelievable. Of course we're flossing. Because literally, I floss right before this appointment. So, I don't know. Um, so, in this experiment, what we did was we tested a more mainstream threat-based or threat-leading message to young Black voters. Mm-hmm. And what I would argue is a much better message. So, a threat-based message sounds like you know, a handful of politicians want to silence our voices and suppress our votes. uh, And so we need to register and we need to participate. Mm -hmm. An agency-based message, which still makes reference to the threat, but does not lead with it, it is not the first thing you say, says Black voters are turning out in record numbers. We are taking our political future into our own hands. And if a handful of politicians think 
they're going to silence our voices or stop our votes. They've got another thing coming. Mm. So it creates a sense of defiance against a threat as opposed to saying, hey, here's this horrible fucked up thing, which we actually find demobilizes people because in order for people to engage politically, they have to believe that it would be efficacious, that it would work. Yes. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in my context, engaging politically is more grassroots level. It's more planning a march or some kind of protest or organizing a boycott or something like that, right? Our, our, Our political action is more there. And I find that, you know, oftentimes, you know, because we are you know, like I like to say, uh, just ordinary, organized, outraged people, you know, that we are starting from that place of like, this thing is fucked up, right? And we want to confront the fucked up thing. Now, I have found myself having conversations with with some of my uh, some of my comrades about, okay, let me give you an example. So we're marching down, we're marching in downtown LA last summer in 2020. And we're passing by a Shake Shack. Do they have Shake Shack in Oakland? They do. Not many. Okay. Okay. All right. So I digress, everyone. I have to know where the Shake Shacks are. So, uh, So we're passing by like this huge Shake Shack in downtown LA. And all of a sudden, a bunch of, I mean, there are hundreds of us, by the way. So, um, and a group of us starts chanting, while you're eating, people are dying. Right. So they're chanting why while you're eating people dying, why you're eating people dying. And I thought about this moment for a second because I'm thinking, you know, I don't want I'm not throwing my comrades under the bus, but I was just thinking in the moment, like there was a time when I didn't really know what was going on, you know, and I didn't understand what systemic racism really was. I understood that racism existed, but I didn't understand the system. And so and I did and I also didn't understand how protest works, how civil resistance works, all the kind of stuff. So I mean, that was me years ago, you know, eating at Shake Shack while, you know, people are protesting in the streets. No one really joins us when we walk by a restaurant and we try to shame them into joining the protest. You know, the message doesn't get people out of their seats right away to to join us. Um, But anyway, I feel like it's so easy for us to start there. And it's because we really don't we literally don't know where else to start, you know. And so one thing I've heard from you and I've heard from other people is start with the shared value first, you know. Uh, but here's the here's the here's the challenge that I have here. I feel like there are a lot of folks who feel like it's hard to tell the difference between starting with shared values and watering down your actual message. Right. I think people are afraid of playing to the middle and diluting what they have to say. They think that shared values means tiptoe around your opposition's, you know, bullshit, whatever you, whatever it, it, the appropriate word is, but to tiptoe around offending people. So, you know, what do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, so many things. That's such an incredible example. So the first thing I would say is that a lot of times the difference between an effective and an ineffective message is not actually what you say. It's the order in which you say it. Mm. And so oftentimes this thing that people fear we're advising they not say, we're actually not advising they not say it. We're just Mm -hmm. advising that it be the second sentence and not the first. Mm -hmm. 
Not always, but sometimes. So sometimes it's as easy as that. The second thing that I would say, and I have at least three things to say, maybe I'll even come up with a fourth by the time I get through it. The second thing that I would say is that there's this notion that the kind of messaging that I very much espouse, um, which is based on a very specific theory of change, and that theory Mm -hmm. of change is engage the base in order to persuade the middle. I believe that if you are simply testing for persuasion on some sort of mythical middle, then you are not going to be effective. Because in order for something to persuade the quote unquote middle, which is its own story, we can talk about what that actually means. Mm -hmm. The middle would have to hear it. Right. A thing that people in the middle don't hear does not persuade them by definition. Right. That sounds like logic to me. Yeah, that's just logic. So (laughs) unless you have a plan for permanent Super Bowl, you know, unless you're like Beyonce and everything that you say gets heard and, you know, even everything she says doesn't get heard. So like not even Beyonce, unless you have some sort of plan that you are in control of all of the media and you just know that everything that you say you're going to have some sort of megaphone for, you have to have a strategy wherein your choir is going to sing from that songbook. Mm. So the values-based messaging, the lead with values, which is not only talk about values, talk about no other things and never mention your shitty opposition. It is lead, (laughs) lead, lead. Yes. Yes. Not exclusively and say no other things. Mm -hmm. Just lead with values. It is actually about base engagement. And this is where, while there is a lot of emphasis and focus in public opinion research and in sort of like commentary on political discourse on the differences between the base and the middle. And, you know, what do like truly ideologically progressive people want and believe and desire and get motivated around whatever versus the middle versus the ideological right wing base? An equally important discrepancy and one that I would argue we don't pay enough attention to is the difference between on the left activists and the base. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, unfortunately for us, one of the many asymmetries that we have with the right is that when you look at what is motivating to right-wing activists, people who are donating, are yelling, are showing up to town halls, are, you know, engaged. Yeah. And the right-wing ideological base, people who perhaps they vote, they don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. but they espouse the same ideology. The things that motivate right-wing activists and the right-wing base are fairly similar. And mm-hmm. it does exist as a continuum where right-wing activists are simply a more vitriolic form of the right-wing mm-hmm. base. That is not true on the left. Mm-hmm. It is not the same. Left-wing activists are mobilized, motivated by different things Then our unengaged base. And by the unengaged base, I mean people who, when we ask them questions about racial justice, about immigrant rights, about climate, about money, about whatever, they agree (laughs) with us. Ideologically, they are aligned with us, but 
they don't march, they don't donate, they don't talk about politics in their social networks. They um, maybe don't even vote, or at least they don't vote sort of in every election. Threat and fear, the like, you really need to give us $27 this time because we really need it. (laughs) This time, we extra super really mean it. And I know you don't want to believe this, but while you're eating, people are dying. That is an extension of, you ready to throw something through the screen at me, of the DNC and the DCCC. Like, Mm. I actually think that's pretty not radical messaging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason it's not radical messaging is because fear and threat-based messaging makes people more conservative. Also, people are dying is a passive construction. Mm -hmm. People are always dying. I hate to tell you, spoiler alert, (laughs) but... People There's are always dying. only one way that this story ends. Your story, right. my story, the yes. story. Yeah, it's not a choose your own adventure. We're all going to die. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, this, this. And and that statement is true regardless of what cause. You know what I mean? Like, so like yeah, while you're eating, people, people die, people are dying is always true. Always true, 100%. Even if you join this march, people are still going to be dying. Yeah, people are still going to die. Someone could protest our march by saying, while you're marching, people are dying. (laughs) Also true, while you're marching, people are dying. (laughs) While you're, you know, not, while you're lying to your dentist about flossing, people are dying. While you're voting and not voting. So that kind of passive construction, I mean, this is what I find so fascinating about the kind of, I would say, not fully thought out resistance to more deliberative and thoughtful messaging. Yeah. Because I hear it all the time is like, oh, well, then that's not radical, or then then that's watered down, or then that's, you know, asking me to pull punches. I'm like, I'm actually not asking you to pull punches. I'm arguing that you're presently pulling punches. I'm right. arguing that when you construct as the villain systemic racism, how are people supposed to respond to systemic racism? Does systemic racism have an address? Can you go like hang out right. at systemic racism's house and be like, <laughs> fuck you, fucker? Like, can you tweet at them? <laughs> There's no organizing strategy. Right. There right, right. is actually no such thing as systems. There are people who make decisions and those people have addresses. So mm-hmm. I actually think that my form of messaging is way more radical because Mm -hmm. it is about claiming that what we believe and what we want is actually the majority position. It is claiming the moral high ground. So let me give you a super concrete example. Years and years ago, and many Californians find this just utterly unbelievable, um, Mm -hmm. under Democratic governor, right? Uh, Under um, Jerry Brown, there was still a holdover from Clintonian welfare destruction, which um, was a rule that said that if you were getting uh, social services, you were getting specifically food stamps and sort of California aid for the poorest of the poor, for really basic things like food. Mm -hmm. 
you could get it for the first kid, but for subsequent kids, it was called the maximum family. Um, you had to prove that either you were on long acting contraception that failed or that you were raped. Wow. Yeah. And there were multiple efforts to repeal this racist sexist. I mean, just like every, like a, like a Russian nesting doll of all of the worst policymaking you could possibly imagine together. Mm. And when, when the campaign first tried to repeal this rule, it, it has been, it, it has been repealed. Mm-hmm. The attempt was to say, invest in California families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is the definition of a morally bankrupt argument. You do not mm-hmm. feed children. You do not provide another what probably amounts to like 20 bucks extra for food a month yeah. for people because mm-hmm. it's an investment, because you expect right. some sort of financial return. And so what is a moral high ground message in that case? It's, I believe all children have rights, whether they're the first yes. born or last. Do you mm-hmm. believe all children have rights? Or are you picking and choosing whether a child can eat based on their birth order? Mm -hmm. So when we use these sort of abstract arguments around investments or around systems, I understand that they're an attempt to make people recognize that racism, for example, patriarchy, et cetera, white supremacy is baked into everything that occurs. And that Mm -hmm. is a noble and important thing to do. But as far as an organizing strategy, a message that would get people to Mm -hmm. behave in the ways that we, to take the actions that we need them to take in order Mm -hmm. to alter concrete rules, it doesn't work because there is no one. Right, right, right. Yeah, I totally hear that. We need, like, I, I think the most compelling thing about what you said is that, like, sure, like, they're... Racism, white supremacy is baked into the structures of our society. And that also makes it almost like you're fighting the air. Like yeah. we have we have to bring it down to the ground to where we do know, like, what do we want? Who can give that to us? Where are they? <laughs> what do they care about? You know, what are their uh, needs and uh, and positions and all that kind of stuff, which is a, a huge challenge that I see. I want to I want to ask you about something you mentioned, too. And I, we don't have to, go, we can go as deep into it as you want or not, you know, but you mentioned persuading the middle, like that maybe we don't have a good idea of what that actually means. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have had um, a fundamental misunderstanding of um, what, quote unquote, the middle believes. Mm-hmm. So we have been fed this idea that people in the middle want a quote unquote moderate solution, that they mm-hmm. want something kind of in between and that they're attracted to whatever moderation is. And uh, these people get labeled in various ways, swing voters, on the fence, whatever. In fact, what we see in experimentation is that what these people do is they toggle between competing views of the way the world works. They are capable of holding and believing in progressive ideas and values and policy prescriptions, and they are lured in by the siren song of right-wing race baiting, of 
uh, conservative, regressive economic policies of xenophobia, transphobia, et cetera, the whole host of things. I think of them as the good point people because they're like this. Mm -hmm. Good point, but also good point. But yeah, (laughs) good point. So for example, when we ask these people in a survey, to what extent do you agree, disagree, talking about race is incredibly important and moves our country forward. Around 65% of them say yes. When Mm -hmm. we ask these people, talking about race is divisive and sets our country backwards, around 65% of them say yes. This is what I mean by good point, good point. Wow. So what we see is that these folks are especially prone to what we call anchoring effects, meaning being moved off of their position by information in their environment, even when it is unrelated to the question at hand. So Mm -hmm. what they hear repeated most often becomes, quote unquote, the way the world works Mm -hmm. and what is true. This is Mm -hmm. why it is so important that we have a choir that is singing from the same songbook because these middle people, they don't have a position. Right. (laughs) If they did, they would be you and me or them. And they're right, right, right. Right. So rather than do what too many Democrats instinctively do, which is come to the middle, right? Try to Mm -hmm. say things that these people already like. What these people already like is what they have been told to like. Yes. So if you so if we build up the choir, then the middle hears more people singing that song which is yeah. more persuasive to them. Is that the idea? That is the idea. So it's the difference between, to take very concrete example, saying, you know, we should have what we used to call in the olden times, quote unquote, gay marriage, because mm-hmm. people should be able to file their taxes jointly. They should be able to have hospital visitation rights, you know, be on mm-hmm. someone else's insurance, etc. Mm-hmm. People who are pro-marriage equality, people who care about that issue, LGBT folks and their allies, they believe that and they agreed, but they wouldn't stand in line and say it at the grocery store because no one has ever stood in line at the grocery store and said, you know, I was thinking the other day about my joint filer <laughs> and about how we filed jointly, right? Because nobody talks about their spouse right. that way. Like that right. is weirdo, creepy alien talk that like people don't talk about that. Yes. I am going on 20 years married. I do not think of my husband as my joint pilot. No. And we file jointly. So <laughs> when instead the message pivoted to love is love and love makes a family, mm-hmm. love is love is a thing that a random person will say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the way a person talks. Right, right. Um, And once the prevailing conversation, or at least not the prevailing conversation, we have to make it the prevailing conversation. But once there is a measurable segment of society being like, you know what, love is love, love makes a family. If you don't like it, don't go to the wedding. If you don't like it, like get them a Mm. shitty gift that's not on their registry, whatever. (laughs) Then the middle is like, oh, huh. I guess this is what is quote, common sense. I guess this is what people Mm. think. I guess this Mm -hmm. is what people like me think. 
Because what's going on is that all of us to a certain degree, but these people in particular, are reading the environment for social cues that are telling them, how does a my kind of person think? How does a suburban white woman think? How does Mm -hmm. a... 22 year old black man think and i'm not saying Mm -hmm. people are doing this consciously very much not right right but people are reading social cues to understand what they're meant to think and do Mm. and so this is why we need to tell people that what they're meant to think and do are the things that we need them to think and do rather Mm -hmm. than saying this is a very contentious issue when people feel very heated about it and people really (laughs) disagree. And there are a lot of people very concerned that if we make these changes to ensure that every single one of us can be safe and to deliver justice for black people in our country, then I don't know what's going to happen. And people are really against this. I'm like, why are you telling people that people are Right. Don't say that. (laughs) Well, yeah, considering considering if you know all of these things, you know, then, yeah, then it seems obvious. Like, don't say that. (laughs) Yeah. Like, this is the shit. We're delivering the shit. Like, this is what people think. (laughs) And, yeah, there's this faction there is this unrepentant faction that are the very same people who once believed it was not only fine but grand to enslave other humans and to deny people rights based on their Mm. race and to refuse to allow women to vote the very same faction that today Mm -hmm. wants to endanger your children by exposing them to a deadly Mm -hmm. vaccine the very same faction that lied about our election so that they could try Mm to silence the voices of black, indigenous, young, new Americans, this ideology has always existed. And what has also always existed is a group of people bound and determined to make the promise of this country real. Mm. And there's more of us. Wow, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're just getting started. People want to be on the winning team. Yes, yes, yeah. So don't so don't tell them that you're well, you're fighting it up you're fighting an uphill battle here and you're under resourced and the the other side is so powerful and that they might be able to crush your movement. Like, doesn't sound like a party right. you want to go to. Like unless you're already an activist. Activists are like, oh, a lost cause. Oh, <laughs> boy, have I got a problem for you? I'm so excited about that. But the left-wing base, people who agree with us but are not activated yet, that doesn't work on them. And that's that's really a very big problem, that activists don't sit like I do in weekly focus groups watching Black women in Columbus, Ohio, or watching Asian Americans in, you know, Concord, or watching... Mm -hmm. Latinos in Phoenix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you actually watch the people that you purport to be organizing, then you can't keep doing this. Mm. You know, one of the things that you mentioned in passing, you know, that this is the same faction that wants to expose us to a deadly virus, you know, and I, I've just been thinking, well, not just thinking, but talking with a lot of people and wondering like how, 
you know, the whole issue of the pandemic, of COVID, of vaccines became so politicized. I'm not going to ask you to like run through that, like a history lesson there, but we just, this is something we just go back and forth about because there are certain things and not just, not just with the vaccine or with the pandemic, but also around uh, global warming, you know, and other things that we feel like some of these things should be common sense where we're like, okay, keep burning fossil fuels, planet gets hotter, no longer inhabitable, right? Deadly virus going around. If we don't wear masks and get vaccinated and listen to our medical professional professionals, more people get sick and die. It's like what you said. It's like, if you hold that opinion, then you must be this type of person or that type of person. And primarily people seem to be thinking about, well, I'm the type of person who would X, Y, or Z. And I don't know how we break through that really. And I know, I feel like a lot of people listening to this podcast um, are not, they don't don't consider themselves to be activists, right? So like a lot a lot of folks are asking on the, on the individual level, like they have a grandpa or a parent or a cousin or a brother-in-law, you know, who thinks that Russia dropped off all the masks at, at secret locations in the city and that, you know, big pharma is is behind it and things like that. So, you know, people are asking questions about how do how do I have more productive conversations with people who are with individuals in my social circle. What do you think about that kind of polarization that we see and having more productive conversations on an individual level? Yeah, a lot of it is messenger. So a lot of it is, especially at the one-on-one individual level, um, it's it's doing non-judgmental listening, as frustrating as that is. It's about being empathetic. It's about beginning from a place of shared value. So Mm -hmm. on the climate thing, let's just take that as a, for instance, it's beginning with someone and saying, you know, I think that basically whoever you are, it's kind of just, you want your water to be clean. You want to be able to drink it. You want to hand your kids a sippy cup and be like, that's fine. And the air that you breathe, you want it to be healthy. You don't want to be coughing and worried that it's all dirty. And most, I mean, it's the very, very rare human being that's going to be like, I want dirty air. Like, I would like to be sick when I drink. Like, it takes a lot. Uh (laughs) Right. So that's most people. And then you say, yeah. And, you know, I think lots of different things cause pollution and contamination. But I think it's pretty obvious that when we're pumping smoke and when we're pumping garbage and when we're pumping toxic waste into the stuff that we rely on like air and water that's not gonna be real good for us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the thing is that we have this unbelievable resource that we are just letting go like we could have infinite energy from the wind and sun and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you would never be able to outsource it Mm -hmm. you'd Mm -hmm. never be able to take it out of our communities Right. It would be energy that we make for ourselves. Yes. When you can have that kind of conversation with people and you don't get into like climate change is real. It's, anthropo- you know, it is caused by people. It is not caused by people. This much of it is caused by people. That much of it. Right. Then you can actually get people into a solution space. But when you act up here, when you speak up here of like catastrophic, you know, environmental collapse and catastrophe, people are like, well, what am I supposed to do about that? Like, yeah. I can do anything about that. So I'm just going to like, you know, shut you out. It's like yeah. while you're eating, people are dying. It's like, yeah, I know. Like, yeah. that's why I got a, a 
large shake. That's like, <laughs> like I got extra fries because I know that. <laughs> That's like I'm onto that. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear I that. I'm like at Shake Shack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got I got a double cheeseburger for this. <laughs> yeah to do with this. Annette, it's been so great to have you on the show. I know that we could talk forever and we're out of time. Uh, That just means we'll have to have you back sometime. So thanks so much for your time today and we'll see you next time. It's such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Also, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps us get more ears and minds. You can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest, as well as Andre's newsletter, Patreon, and book. You can connect with Andre on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheAndreHenry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. We'll see you next time.